So, we just finished a rather lengthy lesson on rethinking the Holy Spirit, which has been part of a series of lessons that we've been doing this year on rethinking some of the unspoken assumptions that we have about the Christian faith. And at the end of the last lesson, I began to speak about how to experience first-hand spirituality, to move away from second-hand or institutional religion, we have to face down some of the instincts that are hardwired into our brains. And to do that, our tradition teaches, there are a body of practices that cluster under the, the heading detachment or the spiritual practices of detachment. And I said our next lesson would be a look at those practices, and it will, but we're not going to start that also rather lengthy lesson quite yet, because I have a few mini lessons, uh, one to two week kinds of lessons, and then we have Advent coming up pretty soon after we get through Thanksgiving, and I'm also hoping to let you hear from a few other voices in our community besides my own. So we'll start that lesson on detachment probably after the new year. And I've kind of already outlined it, and uh, the title will be Rethinking Prayer. And as I've said on a couple of occasions recently, I know that for many of us, prayer has become a troublesome topic. Um, Many of us have simply stopped praying because we don't have a narrative that's associated with it that makes sense for us. So we'll start looking at that um, in the weeks that are coming up. So today, what I want to do is tell you a story, but I won't get to it. Today, I'll actually get to the story next week. Today is going to be about background so that I can properly tell you the story next week. So, when I retell this old and familiar story next week, you will be able to understand it as a morality tale written for a group of people who had lost their way. That's not immediately obvious if you just go back to what you learned in Sunday school. And so, It will be uh, something that was given as a gift to a group who had lost the righteous path and they had lost that which had been given to them, the whispers of the indwelling spirit. And you have got to be kidding. It is just cold in here. You're not cold? (laughs) All right. All right. Terry's not here, so who who mans the air conditioner in the absence of Terry? All right. Anybody over there, would you just go, would you turn it up a little warmer, please? My Lord, it's like a... (laughs) It's an icebox in it. Now we're making the newcomers handle the air conditioner. Come on. (laughs) All right. So it has always been our Judeo-Christian way to challenge prejudice. It has always been our way to invite the outsider in. It has always been our way to care for the foreigner, for the orphan and the widow, for the powerless and for the disenfranchised. That is what it has meant to be children of Abraham. It goes all the way back to the initial mandate. The term hospitality in our tradition has meant a great deal more than tea cozies and finger sandwiches. Hospitality has always been code word for inviting in those who were on the outside. And hospitality uh, in our tradition has always meant more than social manners. It has been our way 
To be hospitable, we have thought of it as marching orders given to us by God's very self. So, that has been our way. It has been our way to invite the outsider in. But, as we've seen many times, it has also been our way to lose our way. We do it all the time. We consistently, through the generations, fall back from the high calling that has been given us. In It is just as much our way to have our way as it is to lose our way. But again, as we've also said, it is also just as much our way to find our way once again after we've lost it as it is to lose it in the first place. So, it was during one of those losing our way and finding it again times in our history that the story I'm going to tell you next week has come to be. But first, the historical context. In the 6th century before Christ, the people of Israel found themselves overrun by the Babylonians. As we've seen in other lessons, when you look at the river valleys in the Middle East, you see that there are big rivers to the north of Israel, a big river to the south of Israel, and a teeny tiny river that runs through Israel. And big civilizations develop around big rivers, and so big civilizations developed consistently through history to the north of Israel and to the south of Israel. And situated right at the crossroads between those big civilizations was this tiny little river that had produced this tiny little civilization that we think of as Israel. And consequently, in being at the crossroads, they were right where anybody going anywhere to beat up anybody else was going to head through. And so, uh, constantly through their history, Israel came under the oppression and under the control of these big civilizations. Because, as we've outlined in other lessons, we've got the problem in an agricultural society of second sons. First son inherits the farm because we want to keep the farm intact. We don't want to split it up into small pieces. So a second son has to go out and find his fortune. And where does he go? He goes to beat up somebody else and take their fortune from them. And so that's what happened again and again through the course of history. One of these big civilizations went somewhere to take something from somebody else. Israel just happened to be right in the middle of all that ruckus What a bummer. (laughs) So about 600 years before Jesus, it was the Babylonians' turn turn to overrun Israel, which they did. And when they did, they took the educated and the able-to-be-educated young people, and they carted them off to Babylon. That's the image that you see from this old uh, clay tablet. And the idea that they had was to enculturate these young people into the Babylonian mindset, to enculturate these young people into the Babylonian life of luxury because they were the apex of civilization at the time, to enculturate them into the values and the beliefs and the mindsets, and then, once enculturated, to send them back to be overseers of what would then become a vassal state of Babylon. In other words, without having to use their own armies, without having to use their own provincial governors, they could send these young people, tribute would come faithfully and consistently from the nation because these young people would now think of themselves more as Babylonians than they did as uh, Jewish people, and so therefore they could extend their empire with minimum uh, cost to themselves, and that was what they had been doing throughout the Middle East, and that was what they were doing now with the Jewish state. And that was the idea, 
and it was working swimmingly in the minds of the Babylonians, but if you were a Jew of the time, you did not see it that way. You saw it only one way, and that is this. You saw that you had been overrun, and you had been dominated by a foreign power, and it was a painful situation, and it was a desperate situation, and it was somehow in that desperation that the seeds were planted which came to fruition in us losing our way yet again. Judaism, Christianity, and Islam all trace their origins back to the story of Abraham in Genesis 12. It is that. Here is the reason I will bless you, Abraham, so that you can bless all the nations of the earth, all the nations, all the people on the entire planet. In that story, Abraham experienced the voice of God. I have chosen you, Abraham. I have chosen your children. And I have chosen your children's children for a special mission, for a special task. I will bless you with insight. And indeed, the the Jewish civilization on that tiny little river valley had a great leap forward in their understanding of the divine that had not been seen in the known world before that. I will bless you with understanding and I will deepen your experience of the divine. And then I want you to become carriers of that insight. I want you to become carriers of that understanding and carriers of that experience to every people, to every nation. That is the Abrahamic mandate. I will bless you so that you may carry that blessing to the earth. But as the central truths and as the important truths tend to do through time, the powerful construct that was at the core of this experience, at the core of this story, became diminished over time, began to tarnish over time. And the idea that the Jews were a chosen people, God's chosen people, that we are a special people, yeah, that part stuck. But the so you can be a blessing to all the nations of the earth part, yeah, that didn't stick. In fact, the dominant thinking of the time began to devolve considerably from that. So badly so that they began to move in the exact opposite direction. Our tradition at that time in history had become quite ingrown in our thinking. We were focusing on the blessing part, but had become quite dismissive of the be a blessing part. And so a guardedness had developed, a certain againstness focused toward the other nations, the other. In fact, we begin to think in terms of rejecting the other nations, distancing ourselves from them, keeping ourselves pure by separating ourselves from them. And in that way, sometimes begin to prohibit any kind of interaction with one another. That's what happens to great truths over time. And that's what happened 600 years before Christ. We were not blessed so that we could bless all the nations of the earth. We were blessed, period. And the other nations, be damned. All the other nations, well, they had become defined in our minds as different or as inferior or as somehow unchosen by God. They were not like us. They were less than us. They were beneath us. 
Since God had not chosen those other nations, it was believed, then we can be justified in our prejudice toward them. Since God had put such a clear dividing line between us and them, it was believed, then it is okay for us to dismiss them. It is even okay that we hate them. A far cry from, I will bless you so that you can be a blessing. So, it had become our mindset at that time when we were losing our way. And, as you can imagine, if that was our mindset, it became very difficult for us to explain what had happened when we had become overrun by Babylon. How is it that God's chosen people, that God's precious and blessed people, had been defeated by the unchosen people, the foreigner, the outsider? What had happened? What does it mean when God allows God's chosen people to be routed and to be overrun by a lesser or by an inferior or an unchosen, un-God's favorite people? Does it mean that we're not chosen? And those were banded about. You can see those questions in the scriptures. Does it mean that maybe we never were? Does it mean that our status as God's favorite has somehow been revoked? Or, worse than that, does it mean that our God is not as powerful as we thought our God was? Perhaps the Babylonian gods are stronger than our God. How do we explain how this unthinkable thing has come upon us? And so they begin to do what human beings do when they have to make meaning out of their circumstances. They begin to tell a story. Here's what happened, they said. God is punishing us for our sin. We disobeyed the commandments of God, and now God is punishing us as a way of getting us to turn back to the righteous path. Yep, that's what this is. This is punishment, God's punishment, to get us to turn around. We had a deal with God. God would be our God, but we had to obey all of his commandments, and in particular, we had to obey all the ritual observances that went with our worship, and that's our problem because we didn't do it faithfully enough. We have disappointed God, and now we are being punished. And once we straighten out and start to fly right, well, then God will restore us to our rightful place, and then we will once again be God's chosen people. And in the years after their defeat and after their exile to Babylon, that became for them a very powerful story. We have sinned. God is punishing us. Because counterintuitively, it actually is a story of hope and promise because what it promises is that once we get back on the right track, then God will do right by us again. And so that's the story we begin to tell. All we have to do is figure out where we went wrong, get it right, and then we will once again be God's chosen people. And as we begin to tell that story during that time again and again, it began to restore to us a sense of civic pride. Ah, that's right. Once again, we are God's chosen people. We still are. We just lost our way, but we're still God's chosen people. We're still the best nation on the earth. We just have to get back to doing what God told us to do. Now, if you have been part of any organized religion for any length of time, even if you have never been carted off to a foreign land, and even if your national pride has never been destroyed, you have nevertheless seen this pattern before. 
it goes something like this. We had a profound and very real and very powerful spiritual experience. We were deeply blessed in our religious life, and we told ourselves that it was God who was blessing us. We told ourselves that God loved us. We told ourselves that God cared for us. We told ourselves that God was available to us. Perhaps we saw things happen in our lives in a very real way. Perhaps there was healing to our souls or healing for our bodies or healing for our marriages. Maybe prayers were answered. Maybe we were invited into a community that was loving and kind. And we felt like we were part of something that was bigger than ourselves. That often happens in the religious life. Maybe we felt like we had a contribution to make and we were positioned to receive the contributions of others. We were part of something. We were experiencing something, something alive and something real and something meaningful. And then things changed. Instead of being on the top, we found ourselves on the bottom. Instead of being in the flow, we found our religious life had somehow become stagnant. Instead of feeling alive, we were feeling quite dead. Instead of feeling accepted, we were feeling deeply rejected. Really, instead of having faith, our lives became dominated by doubt. And what those people of Israel did 600 years before Jesus, we do all the time. It's our sin. That's the problem. It's our sin. We did something wrong. And now God has removed his blanket of grace. We did something wrong and now God has removed his blanket of protection or his covering of blessing or even God has removed his very presence. Now as a minister, I can't tell you how often I have to go up against this instinct in people's lives. Troubles come into our lives or our religion becomes stale and stagnant, maybe uninspiring. And instead of seeing the vast horizon of possibilities that could, that of any factor that could be in play, we fixated on some sin that we have committed that has removed God's blessing. I did this, or I turned the wrong way there, or I'm somehow bad, or I somehow screwed this thing up. And that's such an easy go-to explanation when we are in times of trouble because every one of us at all times in our lives can always point to some shortcoming. Every one of us at all times in our lives can always point to some failure or some sin or some bad thing we've done. It's always there. So it's a great go-to explanation because you can always find material to use of something that I've done wrong. But if we reflect for a little bit, it's good to ask ourselves the question, how then do we explain the times when things are going well? Because things do go well. We do experience the divine life, and we do experience the divine light. We do experience the life of the community. We are being part of something that is bigger than ourselves, and oftentimes we are at the top instead of being on the bottom. So how do we explain those times when there is always shortcoming in our lives? When there is always some kind of sin, some kind of failure in our lives, how do we explain those times when somehow things are just going along swimmingly? Because this is an ever-present reality. 
But that doesn't tend to occur to us in our times of pain. For some reason, it is our basic instinct to say, in the times of troubles, it must have been my sin. You might have heard me do that diagram where somewhere down the pathway I hit the middle, it says, there is inside of us each this deep sense of existential shame. There is something wrong with me, something bad wrong with me. So that instinct kicks in, and we do what the people in Israel did those many centuries ago. Our minds tend to go to the place that their minds went, an instinct, a recurring instinct that happens generation after generation. Like them, we tend to tell that same story. If I'm explaining my pain, it's probably God's punishment. And the corollary to that is as soon as I figure out what the problem is and I straighten it out and I figure out what God wants, then I can set it right. That's what I do. That's what I'll do. Yep, that's what I'm going to do. So I'll redouble my efforts to do things right. I will read my Bible. I hear that's a good thing. I will start praying more. I'll treat my husband right. I'll quit looking looking at smutty videos. I'll stop drinking as much. Yep, that's what I'll do. And then God will come back to me. Whew, what a relief. I've got a plan now. I feel better already. And this is a very common religious mindset. And it would be great if it worked, (laughs) if it was true. But as most of us have seen, when we do straighten out and fly right, things don't always get better. And as we'll see in this story, that's just not how life tends to unfold. Straighten out and fly right is something of a flawed strategy. Now let me hasten to say, do your best to straighten out and fly right. (laughs) There are certain principles in play when we straighten out and fly right, things tend to go better for us. But what it doesn't do is it doesn't once again curry God's favor and remove us from the blanket of his cursing and move us into the arena of his grace and protection. So anyway, as soon as the ancient Israelis told themselves this story, that once they straightened out, God would restore their fortunes, once they obeyed God's commandments, that God would come to their aid and deliver them, once they told themselves this story and their civic pride was being restored once again, once they were able to say to themselves, whew, what a relief, we are still God's chosen people. We really are. Oh, that feels so much better. It's not that our God isn't powerful. We were afraid that might be the case. Again, that's such a relief. It's not that all those nagging thoughts that we were thinking are true. It's much simpler that than that we're just being punished by God. And to get us back on track, all we have to do is just restore back to those things what God has asked us to do, and then he will be on our side. All we have to do is just obey his commandments and do all the right religious things. Well, as soon as they got that figured out, they went to work trying to figure out how they went wrong and how they could get back on track. And their theologians especially went to work double time. What is it, they asked, that we have to do to get back into God's good graces? What are the commandments that we missed? What are the rituals that we somehow failed to perform? How did we get it so wrong in the past? How did we miss the boat? And this is where the story takes a really toxic turn. This is the morality tale for us about how it is through history that we lose our way and we do it so often, again and again. Once you have a truth 
that is not true. Then when you begin to work that truth, it will lead you astray every time. Once you have a truth that is not true, when you then work that truth, it will lead you astray every time. Jesus said it this way, when the light inside of you is darkness, how great is that darkness. When what you think will lead your way is in fact a darkness of its own, you cannot find your way. Just because you believe that being God's chosen people means X, just because you believe that you went wrong by doing Y, that does not mean that when you devise a program to fix that system that never was true in the first place, it's going to work. When the light inside of you is in fact darkness, you will zig when you needed to zag. You will go up when you needed to go down. You will go in when you needed to go out. And that's what happened to them. As soon as they figured out that God was punishing them for abandoning the proper worship rituals, as soon as they figured out that God was punishing them for deviating from the ancient commandments, then they came up with a really great strategy to get themselves out of their pickle, and it was a disaster. Here's what they came up with. You know, it's not really our fault that uh, this problem has come upon us. It's really the foreigners' faults. That's it. It's the foreigners that we've invited into our nation. There is our sin. We married a bunch of non-Jewish women. We invited a bunch of outsiders in. We got way too cozy with the foreigners and the strangers. That's our problem. It was the outsiders and all of their different traditions. It was the outsiders with all of their different values. It was the outsiders with all of their different worship practices. That's our sin. They are our problem. Now perhaps you can start to see where this is going to go so badly wrong. Because as you can see, prejudice and hatred toward the outsider is fixing to happen here. As soon as they begin to solve the wrong problem, as soon as they begin to work on a truth that was not true, they were well on their way to losing their way. And sure enough, they did. They identified the scapegoat. It was the foreigner. It was the outsider. It was the different one. That is why God is punishing us. Now, we have the luxury of being on this side of history. And so consequently, it's easy for, uh, easier for us to see how self-serving that psychological story is. It really isn't our fault. It's just not really. It's somebody else's fault. But we can't be too hasty to judge them because we do the same kinds of mental tricks to let ourselves off the hook. They just happen to be different than this particular trick. But when they begin to work the wrong truth... They fell into the oldest trap in the book, the scapegoating trap. It's somebody else. Somebody else is causing my pain. It's somebody else. It's their fault. It's my wife's damn fault that this marriage is in trouble. It's my boss's fault that I'm so miserable at work. It's the fundamentalist Muslim's fault that I feel so afraid all the time. It's the gay people who have brought down God's judgment on our nation. It's anybody I can think of who is not me. 
it's anybody I can think of who is not us. That's the problem. That's where the fault lies. The oldest trap in the book, the scapegoating trap, because it just feels so good. It feels so good not to be the one responsible. It feels so good not to be the one at fault. It feels so good to put the blame on the other. Almost doesn't matter who the other is as long as it isn't me. And so, six centuries before Christ, it was the foreigners that they had been associating with. It was their fault. In their minds, it was the very nations that Abraham and the children of Abraham had been commanded to bless. It was when we started blessing them, damn it, that's what got us into this trouble. Foreigners are the problem. And hospitality and the ancient commandment to invite the outsider in and the ancient commandment to care for the stranger, that, they begin to say, that is not what God really wants. We were mistaken. What God really wants is for us to keep them outside. What God really wants is for us to keep them foreign and to keep them strange. What God really wants is for us to be vigilant, to root out all the foreign elements and keep ourselves racially pure and to keep ourselves traditionally pure. It is what God really wants is for us to reestablish the sacred traditions before they came and began to corrupt us. What God really wants is for us to make sure no foreign elements come in and dilute the one and pure way of being God's people. That's what God really wants. All those ancient texts to the contrary, ignore them. Here are some new texts. And most of the things that you and I read in the Scriptures about racial purity and about keeping the outsider in were written right after the Babylonian exile. Here are some new texts. Listen to them. And that began one of the darkest times in our history. It was a time that gave rise to racial purist riots, vigilante squads that went from town to town, village to village, checking bloodlines to make sure we had purity. The book of Deuteronomy that looks like it was written early in the process was actually written much later after the Babylonian exile. And when you get to 23 and 24, you can see how they issued some new laws, created some new dictates. And what they said is you've got to go back 10 generations to make sure that you are racially pure. God's blessing was for Jews only. God's people meant Jews only. Abraham be damned. When the light inside of you is darkness, how great is that darkness? When your God is a punitive God and your truth is not true, when you begin to work that truth, how great is your darkness? When your sin turns God away from you, when your truth is not true, how great becomes your darkness? How harsh your religion becomes, how blind your religion becomes, how hateful your heart becomes, how far you deviate from the ancient revelation of the heart of the divine, how much you lose your way. But remember, the premise of this year of lessons, yes, it is our way to lose our way, but it is also our way to find our way again. And next week we're going to see how our forebears, those many centuries ago, 
found their way again. We'll look at one of the most memorable stories in the Bible. You might have picked it up in Sunday school. It is the story of Jonah. And we will talk about the story of Jonah and you will see it as a publicly read morality tale to a group of people who could mock Jonah. What a silly guy he was. How he deviated from what God told him to do only to have to turn and look at one another afterwards and see what we were doing, exactly what Jonah was doing. And so we will see that story in the light of this historical context and we will see how we lose our way but we find it yet again. So Holy Spirit of God within us, may we be informed by the lives of our forebears. May we see the light and may the light inside of us be revealed anytime it is darkness. May we see those instincts that we inherited, those basic premises that we never question, that have begun to barnacle themselves around our hearts and around our souls, that we take as givens. May we see them in light of the indwelling Spirit of God. And may we be drawn into truth, the way, the life. Be that so, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.